If you have your Bibles, why don't we turn over together to uh, John chapter 17. John 17. We're going to continue where we've been these, these last uh, few weeks. And uh, this series in the, the heart of John is going to come to an end, I think, um, just as we head into the, the Advent season. And we'll uh, move away from that. And then a new series will begin after Advent in January. So that's kind of uh, the general direction of where we're we're going. I feel like I've got more stuff than usual. I think the older I get, the more stuff I got to bring stuff up here. Glasses, and I got a cane over there, you know, I'm trying to just in case. You never know what's going to happen. So, uh, this passage is amazing, and I uh, can only hope to begin to give you some of the incredible encouragement I've received from John chapter 17 this week. It's been a huge encouragement in my life and to my heart. This passage, uh, Jesus is, as, as Gary said last week, it's kind of the, the official or the real Lord's Prayer. And last week, we saw that Jesus was praying for himself and the fact that he was going to be glorified very soon, and it is very soon indeed. And then this week, we're going to look at how he is praying for his disciples, the people right around him, his apostles. And then next week, we'll look together at how he is, is praying for those who would come to faith because of the witness of his apostles. That's, that's really, he, listen, he's, he's, these words, you could write your name on them and say, I saw in John, the Bible says, Jesus is praying for me, for us. But that's next week. But it's going to be really good. And so I'm really looking forward to that a lot. Here today, he is praying for the disciples, and we certainly, by, by connection and closeness, proximity, we, we, we prayed for in this prayer as well, because what he prays over the disciples, we are going to get the benefit of, and we're going to see ourselves in this passage as well. So, John chapter 17, we're going to start reading at verse 6, and we're going to go all the way down through verse 19. So, I'm going to read, I hope you don't mind, I'm going to read in the English Standard Version uh, and so if you have a pew Bible, uh, that's totally cool, and it's the NIV, and you can kind of follow along there, but I'm going to read in the English Standard Version today. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. They have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, all all yours, excuse me, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. 
I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Father, we come to you today so thankful for this passage where we see Christ's heart for his disciples. So often we think of you as a God who has all power, and you do. Or we think of you as a God of wrath, and in some respects it's right to think of you like that. But Father, to hear these tender, loving words, these things that were on Christ's heart just before He came to be with you and just before He finished His work in this world, it is an eye-opener to us today about how much you love, how much you love us. I pray, Father, that our hearts would be turned towards you in a profound way today because of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are some Christian doctrines that I feel like we apologize for. And so we don't know how to tell people, and so we make excuses for them. We're like, oh, okay, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how that happened. I don't know why. So, you know, there, there are many of them. You could say the Trinity is one of those. I, I, you know, it, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit three and one, you know, we, we do some, some things like one times one equals one and that kind of thing. And, and that's all true and good and right, but at the end of the day, somebody coming from outside the faith doesn't get it. The natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit, and we begin to apologize. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I can't really explain it. I just believe it. And, and that is also true of this doctrine we're going to look at, Today, as we look at what Jesus is teaching his disciples in this prayer and what he knows to be true, the heart of this thing that Jesus is telling us, though, is this, and we don't apologize for this. Let's just embrace this. Jesus, in this passage, is not praying for the world. That doesn't mean he doesn't love the world, but here's what I'm going to state. It's a new category of thought for some of us, or at least let's get it out there in the open and say it, and that's this. God loves His given people in a special and particular way that He doesn't love the rest of the world. Now, John 3.16, God loved the world. There's no doubt about that. That's true. We embrace that. We love that. But in a special way, God has set His favor and His heart and His love on those who know Jesus Christ and walk with Him. And if that's you today, that's not a doctrine that you should apologize for. That's not a teaching from the Word that you should say, well, I'm sorry to the world around me. I'm sorry, uh, you know, we've been saying all these years that God loves the world, but, uh, you know, the truth of the matter is, this passage says God loves His people in a particular way that He doesn't love the world. 
And that's not something to apologize for. That's something to bask in the glory of. You are loved and God has set His affection on you if you know His Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior. He cares about you. The the work that Christ did on the cross, He had at the forefront of His thinking as He was going to the cross. It It was for the ones who were given to Him. It was for those who would trust Him. Uh, he, he sees where you are and what you're about. If we look at Deuteronomy, and we'll look at that a little bit later, the reality is God has always been doing that. Even when He chose Israel, He chose them because He loved them, not because they were special or profound or did some cool trick. He chose them because He loved them. And uh, we're here today to announce this and to put it out there and to embrace this truth. God loves His chosen people in a special way. God loves the ones that he's brought into relationship with his son in a special and profound way. And we are not to apologize for that. We are to glory in it. Why, in this passage, is Jesus praying in particular, though, for these called out ones, these disciples? Look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. And we get our first answer to this question. Why does Christ pray for the disciples? And our first answer, if you're taking notes, you can jot this down. It's because these given ones belong to Christ. They belong to Him. Now, they don't belong to Him. In this passage, we aren't seeing that that Christ chose them. We're going to look at that as we go. God, the Bible says, chose them. God has given these ones who belong to Christ to him. And so we can look at the Old Testament and see that, of course, all life comes from God. God created life. And so in their birth, God gave them identity and God gave them existence. But beyond that, there's more to it than that, that God did a work of election. Over them, that God has always been the one who takes the initiative in terms of bringing people into relationship with Him. And again, we'll look at that. But as they are the given ones, there's this group of people that God the Father has drawn to Himself, and in this passage it says, He gives them to the Son. So He draws them to Himself and He gives them to the Son. And that's why, according to verse 6, that's why Jesus is praying for them, because they belong to Him. This isn't a a new thought. In fact, if we look back at John chapter 6 and verse 37, we get some teaching on this concept that is amazing. It makes our our mind explode in a good way. And that's where John says this, again in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So the grounds for the coming is the giving. In other words, uh, all that are given will come. And that's exactly what Jesus says here. And, the, and, and we would say, well, that's the doctrine of it, the teaching of the Bible of, of election, that God calls or God elects those who will be saved. All right? John chapter 6, verse 65, we continue. All right? And he said, Jesus said, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And we come to this This calling that God does. God says, listen, come on, come. To all those given to the Son, uh, the given status of them requires that they come and they will. All right? So there's an election and there's a calling. Now, can I just say before we move on, we aren't saying here that 
this elective process that God does is devoid of human response. We aren't saying that God chooses, it's set, you don't have to do, you don't have to respond with faith, you don't have to follow after him, you can do whatever you want. We're not saying that at, at all. And that's not what the New Testament says, it's not what the Old Testament says. As God gives and, and that status of giving brings in or all that are given come, there is a human response that has to take place in your heart. We live in the heart of, of Reformed theology country, and that's a good thing. But here's where it's a bad thing. Where young people grow up hearing, I am chosen, therefore I don't have to do anything to walk after Christ and have salvation. That is a dangerous doctrine, and that is not from heaven. In fact, it, it is, a, is a demonic thought to think that we don't have to respond to God in faith. We do. And in this passage here, he's saying, look, even, he, he's saying the election, the calling, the faith, Ephesians chapter 2, it is by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, right? And so we see that the election and the calling and the faith, it's all of God. By grace through faith, not of yourself. And even this life in Christ, what is that all about? And in John chapter 17, verse 3, we've just read it last week. This is eternal life that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. God has done this work. It requires certainly human interaction, and we, we must follow after him. But we believe, I believe that the scriptures teach that the, the human response of faith is given by God. It must be there, but even that is a gift of God. And that is what Jesus is saying in this passage. Look again. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. Listen, while they were in the world, they still belonged to God. Just a matter of time until they came. Until, the, until the, the faith was given and the response was a reality. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you for. I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and you and have come to know in truth that I came from you. As this, this is a beautiful doctrine that starts with God's sovereignty and flows through his love, and it's not a doctrine you and I should apologize for. It's not a doctrine that we can claim to fully understand. It's a teaching that Jesus is putting forth here in this high priestly prayer. It's one for us to spend time in. It's one for us to consider in the morning when we're doing our, our devotions. It's one for us to think about and let just, let's just sink into the depths of our heart and mind this truth that, that we're chosen. And, and listen, as we said before, this is no new thing. You know, in the Old Testament, a group of people said, I volunteer to follow after God. In fact, I want to let the world know that we're following after God and we're going to do that in such a way we are going to leave our mark in this world forever. There were the people that were expanding right after the ark came to rest and they came to the place in Babel where they said these words, let us, Genesis chapter 11, let us make a name for ourselves and build a temple and build a tower that will go to heaven. God came down and confused their language and said, no, no, you won't make a name for yourself, but about your faith in me. 
And the very next chapter, God said, I will choose Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. I'll choose Abraham. And through him, I will make my name great. This was a choosing completely of God. Why is that? You know, Jesus does not try to answer the question, why is that? He does not sit back and say, you know, let, let's try to figure this out. But I will, I will say this, there's an answer to it, uh, and, and we'll come back to why is that in just a minute. But in Deuteronomy chapter 7, uh, God himself is saying, hey Israel, why do you think I chose you? Why do you think you're my, my people? Do, do you think it's because you're special? Do you think you did something? Do you think it was about you? And De Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 6 starts to answer that question. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. He loved the Israelites, which started with Abraham, also his sovereign choice. He loved them. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, He didn't choose the Hittites, he didn't choose the Jebusites. He didn't choose the Philistines. He didn't choose anybody else. He chose Abraham, and from Abraham, he made of him for himself a people, the Jewish nation. It was verse 7, and this, this verse I love. It's one that I go to time and time again because it begins to answer the question, why did God choose Abraham and Israel? It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. And it goes on from there. Why does he love the Israelites? Because he loves the Israelites. He made an oath with them, and he chose them, and he loves them, and that's all the answer we get. He loves them because he loves them. Why does the Lord love His chosen ones? Jesus does not seek to answer that question, but I'll tell you this. Jesus evangelized hundreds and thousands of people in His ministry, and at the end of His ministry, He's sitting around with 12 guys and maybe some outliers in this place, and that's all He's got. Why did He evangelize thousands and thousands, and at the end of the day, only a few were truly enlightened? Jesus doesn't seek to answer that question. On the one hand, in John chapter 13, Jesus chooses, and in John 17, God chooses, and, and we don't, they mutually and, and simultaneously choose together, and they don't try to say, well, here's the reason why, or here's the answer to the question. And again, we come to a doctrine that we scratch our head, and we don't understand the mysteries, but we submit and we love, and God's ways are not our ways, and God is far above us. And we come to this place where we say, this, this overwhelms my ability to understand the love of God. And we don't apologize for it. We don't sit back and say, well, I, I wish this, or if I were God that, or this is how I would do it. We say, this is our God. This is His mind. This is His heart for his people. So he prays for them because they belong to him. And by the way, to finish my thought, Christ goes out and evangelizes the masses. Remember when the masses would come to him? 
thousands and thousands of people after he fed them, and they came because of the food. Incidentally, we can get people to come to church. That's not a problem. We can find ways to get them to come to church, right? But the coming of them to a relationship with the Holy God, that is the key. That is the hope. That is the thing we pray for. And so when the people were fed and they had their food and they came into the presence of Jesus, finally he started saying things like, well, listen, I am the bread of life. Uh, I don't have any more food for you. If you're going to come into a relationship with my Holy Father, you're going to have to eat what I offer you. That is, I am the promised Messiah of old. I am the only one you should look for. I'm the end of the search. I'm the only one that God is going to save this world through. It's just me. There's no one else. And, and the people started hearing this, this idea of Jesus being the bread of life, and they started scratching their head. And there were thousands of people, and Jesus didn't say to his disciples, let's see how we can get these thousands of people to come closer. He said to the thousands of people, if you're going to keep following after me, it's going to get harder. And the Bible says they turned and walked away. So much so that Jesus looked at his disciples and said, uh, listen, are you going to go too? It's not going to get easier. It's going to get harder. And his disciples said to him, you are the Son of God. Only you have the words of life. Only Jesus has the words of life. So his disciples had become convinced that Jesus was the only one, the promised one of God. And that's the essence. We're going to look at it in just a minute. That's the essence of obedience is do you receive this Son, this only one who is from God? So he is praying for his disciples here because they belong to him, and this, in, in this new identity, he loved them in a special way. We don't apologize for that. We love it, and, uh, and uh, we embrace it. Uh, the second question, why does Christ pray for his dis- disciples? The, the, the second answer is because these given ones believe him. They have received him. Look at chapter, uh, again, 17, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. These given ones believe Christ. Christ is making known the Father. And and let me just say this, in sort of a, a final way. Now, yeah, God still interacts with us, and yeah, God still answers prayer, and yes, we have the Holy Spirit, but if you're talking about the Old Testament being uh, the Word and the New Testament being the Word in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the final revelation. He's the last chapter in terms of a written revelation, and he's showing the disciples who Christ is. And Christ is saying, they saw that I was making you, Heavenly Father, known. They saw that I was indeed the one and only Messiah, and they received me. Well, how did Christ make God the Father known? We see him at his baptism making Christ known. We see him when he comes to the temple and they are treating the temple as a den of thieves. He makes God known. And he picks up a whip and he cleanses the temple and says, my father's house should be called a house of prayer but you have made it a den of thieves. And we see Jesus Christ showing us uh, the righteous anger of God. We don't just see anger. We see at the grave of Lazarus a sobbing 
friend. Do you know that that's God's heart for you and me? Knowing what you, that he knows the frailties of your body and your life. That, that God is not this, this, just this all-powerful one afar off, but he's the one who's standing near you as a friend, weeping over the trials and struggles of your life because of this special love we're talking about. And Jesus revealed to his disciples that heart that he had for their struggles, for the losses, for the broken relationships, for the absolute disappointments. And Jesus weeps with them and for them. They are about to see another display of God's glory and power as in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Roman soldiers come. And Jesus says to them, look, I could have called some legions down and you guys would answer to me. And as he says, they say, who are you? And he says, I am the one that you are looking for. And those words, I am, come out of his mouth and they fall down on their faces because he is showing them the glory of the Father. That is a profound thing. But these disciples have believed that Christ is who he said he is. Listen, your life, here's what we say. We say we'll be okay with God once we never lust anymore. We say we'll be okay with God if I can get my list of rules and just stay in the box. We say that we'll be right with God if I can just control my kid enough and make them obey in public and they don't bring any embarrassment on me. We say that we'll be, and we've got this whole list of when we're going to be okay with God. And Jesus is saying in this prayer, you'll be okay with God when you receive this one truth. I am the only one who can make you right in his sight. Don't look for another one. Don't wait for another one. Don't look to astrology. Don't look to horoscope. Don't look to luck. Don't look to superstition. Don't look to religion. Don't look to Ten Commandments. Don't look to any other place. There's one place where you can receive the forgiveness of your sins. And Jesus says in this passage, disciples, you receive me as the only one who can do it, and therefore you have obeyed the Father. Have you? Not looking anywhere else for your hope. Not looking anywhere else to be right with God. But into the face of Jesus. Do you believe Jesus? I'm not talking about do you believe that he lived? Do you believe that he was a moral teacher? I'm saying do you believe he was the promised one of God, the only one who can make you right before him? He's the holy one. That is what obedience is all about. If we were reading this, we would laugh. If we would have overheard this, look again at verse, the end of verse 6. Uh, they have, he, Jesus is saying to the Lord, to, to God, yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. As we look at the New Testament, we go, wait a second, wait a second. What do you mean they kept your word? They, they fought with each other. They didn't understand about the death and resurrection. They kept asking, Who, can I sit at your right hand in heaven? Uh, they, they didn't understand. Judas is a part of this. They didn't understand any of that stuff. What is he talking about? Well, there's no doubt that he's being benevolent and kind and gracious in the way that he is talking to his father about the disciples. But the bottom line is this. They had... Stopped looking elsewhere. They were looking to Jesus. They stopped saying, I'm going to listen to what the organized church of that day tells me about rightness with God. I'm listening to Jesus 
That's what I was talking about before when I said, the, remember the, the bread of life and uh, you've got to take me in yourself and, the, and the, uh, the crowds of people said, we don't receive that, we've got to leave. And Jesus turns to his disciples and say, are you going to leave too? And they say, you are the son of God. You are the only one who has the words of life. The literal quote is, to whom would we go? There's no one else. Remember when Jesus comes down or just uh, in, the, in the context of the, the, uh, the transfiguration? And just before that, Jesus has been doing miracle upon miracle and he comes to Peter and he says, who do you say that I am? Remember he says, who, do, who does the world say that I am? And they, oh yeah, they say that you might be a prophet or something. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? The answer to that question is obedience. The answer to that question is Peter saying to Jesus, you are the Christ. Messiah. The word Christ, anointed one. So that means, who do you anoint? Kings, right? So the word Christ is Messiah. You are the one, you are the long-awaited one. You are the only one from God. You are God himself. There's not going to be another one. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus follows up with a response, blessed are you, Peter, because you didn't learn that from a man. And guys, we can't convince you into the kingdom of God. We are not here to give you answers to all of your questions. We are not here to debate the different perspectives on ontological you know, apologetics. We are here to tell you that Jesus and only Jesus is the Christ, and only when you have a supernatural experience with God and he gives you spiritual life will you be forgiven. And if you're waiting for, I've had so many young people come to me waiting for him to show up. This passage says he already showed up. And he's not going to show up again in flesh. For you to come into a living, righteous relationship with Jesus Christ is a gift from God where he puts spiritual life in you that you don't have right now if you don't know him as your Lord and Savior. You say, well, my dad's disappointing me. Or my mom makes me upset. Or I'm waiting for something to happen. And we're just saying, take a step back and just say, listen, Jesus evangelized thousands and most of them didn't come to faith. We're going to wait till God does the work of enlightening each of us in a profound and powerful work. And it's not going to be because I win an argument. And it's not going to be because I, I, I find a new apologetic that proves my point. It's going to be because the work, the working of the Spirit takes place in my life and in your life. Jesus prays for them because they believe Him. And that believing is a gift from God. Jesus is also praying for them because they're deeply loved. We've already talked about that. But listen. In Luke chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, if you want to just jot that down, it basically says this, you and I should really be full of joy because of this love that God has for us. In Luke 10, 19 and 20, it says, look, you've, you've been given lots of strength over the spirits of this world. You have spiritual authority in this world. But don't glory in that. Take joy in this truth that your name is written in the book of life in heaven. And that should be the source of your joy and my joy. So Jesus prays for them because they are deeply loved. Some Christian messages are the wrong message at the wrong time. Like, if, can you imagine Noah's ark? And, and let's just say that Noah had the foresight to have the 30-foot stepladder out and decided, I'm going to put some bumper stickers on the ark. Wouldn't that be great? Big, giant bumper sticker. You know, here's, a, here's a bumper sticker that didn't make the cut. You know, coexist. You know, that one didn't make the cut of going on the ark. 
Sorry, but it's true. All right? Here's another one that didn't make it because I want you to hear this from what they were reading as the waters were going up, right? The boat was going up and they were not going up. God loves you. Here's what we're saying. God loves his chosen people in a special way, in a profound way. And one commentator this week said, the outside of the, uh, the ark would not have the bumper sticker, God loves you. But the inside would have been plastered with it. God loves you. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that is a special and profound love. It should be cultivated and treasured. It should be thought about and prayed about. It should be, it should be of all the possessions we have in this world, the thing that we take the most seriously and the thing that we uh, extend our gratitude and thankfulness to God about. Thanksgiving's coming up this Thursday, and, and it may sound trite to say, well, I'm thankful for the love of God. But if you think and pray about how to phrase that as you go into relationship with your family members, there's still time to make a statement to your family members this year talking to them about how you are thankful to God for his love. Listen, don't let Thanksgiving this year be about you saying all the things you are thankful for. We can all make a list. You can make a long list of things you're thankful for. That's not what Thanksgiving is about. What Thanksgiving is about is who you are thankful to, not what you're thankful for. And so we've got to be very careful as we go into our Thanksgiving season this year, that Thursday we walk in and don't say, well, I'm thankful for this, and I'm thankful for that, and I'm thankful for this. And anybody and everybody can make a list of what we're thankful for. The question is, do we have the boldness to tell our family members what, who we're thankful to? Well, let's move on. So these are the reasons why God or why Christ is praying for his disciples. And now we're answering the question, what does Christ pray for the disciples? All right? Christ prays for their protection. He's praying that they would be protected. And so look at verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Keep them or protect them in your name. That's what Christ is is praying for them. Listen, as we said before, we're not going to be kept, we're not going to be guarded because we have a list of things we do or don't do. We're not going to be guarded because we, in our flesh, live out some Christian principles. We're going to be guarded by the reality of God's name over us and around us. You say, well, how how does that even work? What does that mean? The name of God represents the character of God. The character of God represents the presence of God. So if we want to be the people who walk with God, we are not going to be the people who walk around saying, well, now, these are the rules I obey. We're going to be the kinds of people who walk around and say, this is the God whom I love. And so... Think about the people who had interaction with God in the Bible, in the Old Testament. They did not walk up to God and say things like, you know, hey, hey, thanks for showing up here today. I really appreciate your being here today. You got some marching orders for me? You got something I should do? No. 
They didn't have this friendship relationship with God where they kind of, they listened and sat back and said, you know, I like what you said over here, A and B, but man, you got to see. Uh, I didn't like, and incidentally, in my heart of hearts, that's where I have been on this doctrine of election. I like A and B, but man, I don't know if I can receive that. Listen, people in the Old Testament, people in the New Testament, people who have had interaction with God, they don't have that attitude. The Bible says, if we go to Isaiah chapter 6, that when Isaiah had interaction with God, he was undone, unhinged. He, he, he was not himself. He, he fell on his face before the Lord, and, and in the Old Testament and New, the various people have interacted with God. They have been paralyzed. They have been uh, unable to speak. Saul on the, the road to Emmaus, or excuse me, to Damascus, he was blinded by his experience with God. And so when we say to, that the name of God would protect us, we're not saying that, you know, there's sort of some, you know, nebulous power out there that we hope for. We're not saying that's, that's what Christ prayed would really help us out, but that's not sufficient anymore. We're not going to go there. What we really want to be powerful now is our rules and our church and our religion. No, it's still the name of God. And what we need to do is spend time in the presence of God, realizing that he's not this friend that's just going to stand by us and we can decide if we like what he says or not what he says. We can, we can do it or not do it. We can embrace it or not embrace it. No, we are undone in his presence and that is our protection. When we come before him on our face and say, woe is me, Lord, woe is me, We see a a similar story in Revelation chapter 4 where John comes in, this this John comes into the presence of the Lord and he is speechless because the name of the Lord is there. The character of God is represented and the presence of God is a reality. Do you spend time with God like that? Listen, I'm not saying I do that perfectly at all, but the best moments of my life have been times with the Word of God open, my heart desperately willing and ready to change and, and asking God, come speak to me in this moment. And I believe that's what Jesus is talking about when he says, your Word will protect them and guard them. The, the, there's a lot of different things that are dangerous in, in the world around us. And he is in particular talking about being protected from the evil one. And we see that way down in like verse uh, 18 or so, or, or 16 I mean. So the evil one is on the prowl. He is the one who is the danger zone. But there's other dangers as well. There's the danger of, Jesus is saying, the reason I'm praying for them is because I'm about to leave them. And I am concerned that one of two extremes is going to happen. Right? Either they're going to say, I don't like the world system. And so we, when they persecute us, we are just going to get out of the world system and we are going to go over and live in this little community and it's just going to be us four and no more and that's going to be the way we do Christianity. Jesus is praying against that. He's praying against isolationism. The other option is we're going to be uh, in the world and we're going to be in the world in such a way that we start to become like the world. And we're going to be so infected by the world's policies and the world's values and the world's thoughts that there's not going to be any different between the church and the world. That's a danger. And Jesus is saying, look, neither one is the case. 
I don't want you out of the world, but I don't want you to be like the world. You're going to be in the world, but not of the world. That is the mission he's calling us to. To go into the world with the gospel and don't be afraid of what is there. To, to engage with them and to love and to care for them because we're going to see next week when Gary unfolds it, there are many who are going to come to faith because of the testimony of these apostles, of these disciples. They're yet to come to faith. There are many who are going to come to faith because you and I go into the world. And we don't withdraw from the world over here and we don't become like the world over there. Listen, this is where a lot of college students live, right here. Is that everybody around them has started out in Christ Jesus and and we are now in the world and we can now make no effective distinction between my friends who say they're Christian and my friends who don't. And we lose our mission. That's exactly what Jesus is praying against in this passage. Lord, guard them from that. Protect them from that thinking that they can just go into the world and be like the world. And he prays finally, he prays for their sanctification, that they would be set apart, and in particular in this passage, it's set apart for a purposeful mission. That takes place when we take the Word of God seriously, and this is where we're going to close today. Guys, in, in, the, in the early part of this, it says, it says that he's praying for them because they belong to him, and in essence, they belong to him because they received his words, his doctrines, his teachings. Then it says, I'm praying for them for protection, and the protection comes from the word of God as we give ourselves over to it. And then it says here, he's praying for their sanctification or for them being set aside or set apart, excuse me, for a particular task that God has for them. And that happens, it says here in this passage, when we take the word seriously. Verse 8, uh, verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. There is no mission without the Word of God. We have nothing to offer the world if we don't bring them the Word of God, which is revealing the Son of God. Conversely, the heart of worldliness is trying in our flesh to live a life on our own mission without God's mind. And I'm concerned about the church in the United States and in the world who would begin to say, we want to do this mission, but we're not so sure that the Word should be the center of the mission. It's got to be the center of the mission. Or we don't have Christ and we don't have His mind. It's got to be the center of what we do. It's got to be the center of what we bring. Or we're not sanctified, set apart for His mission. We're inventing a new mission. And so this is what we long to be this place where Christ is glorified, where we are not uh, settling for a secondary kind of uh, mission, but we are protected as we go into the world with hope and we are bringing the hope of the Word of God and we are sanctified in the way we live. And God, help us as we do this together. Would you stand with me as we close? The, the uh, guys who are, who are going to lead us in a closing song are coming and uh, just ask that the Lord would really prepare your heart to sing a song of praise to the Lord in response to all that we've been talking about.
talking about today. Father, help us. You have called us to neither compromise with the world nor retreat from the world. And the result of believing and embracing these truths is that we, your people, would be unified. We would walk together. And in this place, Lord, it's your gospel that draws us together. It's your gospel taught by your word, glorifying your son. So we pray even right now that there would be a canopy over this place, a canopy of your name. And we would not be confused by those words, but we would understand that what that means is we were on our face before you, having a a real interaction with the holy God of the universe who could throw both body and soul into hell, but who in Jesus Christ is saving those whom he has given to his son. And we praise you for it, even as we sing this song to you.